Welcome to UCLA Extension's Business Insights with Roger Trenaden, where we highlight hot topics and underlying economic trends useful to you. It's history versus the realities of now. We're going to look at jobs and business recoveries by looking at the industry position for recovery and growth, job prospects, and small business support. Events in recent weeks are reminders of what our parents and our grandparents went through in past panics, crises, and depressions. Many of us might appreciate the periods of economic stability that seemed to slip away all so quickly, bringing instead marketplace volatility and even chaos some days. Imagine how hopeless it seemed when the stock market crash in late 1929 ruined many businesses while the Federal Reserve took actions that only prolonged a 25%-plus employment rate across the United States. We've only lived with today's economic panic or crisis for just under six months. Imagine also the damage high unemployment inflicts on all our daily lives. During the Great Depression, there were major riots in New York, Chicago, and other large cities that even threatened our democracy. Here's a link that'll give you an idea of the severity of the Great Depression's impact on daily life. I'll post it on SoundCloud also, but it's www.workers.org forward slash 2012 forward slash US forward slash unemployed underscore workers underscore movement underscore the number 0119 forward slash. I'll quote some of this brief article, which I really recommend to you. Quote, The 1930s produced the largest movement of the unemployed and poor that the country has ever known. Rising anger led to defiance and resistance. Communists declared on March 6, 1930 to be International Unemployment Day and led marches and rallies of the unemployed in most of the major cities of the United States. Several thousand marched to factories and auto plants to demand jobs and unemployment insurance. Thousands of unemployed veterans descended on Washington, D.C. Millions of unemployed blacks and whites marched together. In 1936, six years later, most major groups of the unemployed merged, and a National Poor People's Alliance was formed that agitated and protested to get legislation implemented. Protesters sought to achieve more substantial reform via organizational and electoral pressure for legislative reforms. Due to people's unrest, President Franklin D. Roosevelt's new administration put forth more liberal relief policies. Instead of public assistance, he called for a public works program, timely to think about today. Let's fast forward back to today. For the past generation, and more specifically since 08-09, the Great Recession, our economy has actually set the stage for the next period of instability, one that we are pretty much now all experiencing. As I covered in our initial podcasts, our unemployment reports leave out millions of Americans who have given up trying to find work, have part-time jobs because they can't find full-time jobs, and don't qualify for unemployment benefits. Today, we have the Federal Reserve supporting the large banks and those that can qualify for their new lending programs, again in collaboration with the large banks. While Congress adds more substantially to the federal debt, providing temporary liquidity to businesses and families on the edge of bankruptcy or insolvency. Please excuse the rant, but we simply must do better with what we've learned from the past 40 panics and crises. 
With our infrastructure, bridges, city streets, water and sewer pipelines, hydroelectric dams, reservoirs, electricity networks, and other assets, many that are rusting, bursting, and risking failure, with our infrastructure known for its deterioration and risk of failure, why don't we as a country collaborate on projects to improve lifestyles and productivity through public works? We did it before. We now have borrowed and printed so many new trillions of dollars. Why not borrow and print a bit more to rebuild and achieve some degree of harmony in the process? Okay, the rant's over. Let's try to put aside COVID-19 and remind ourselves that our health professionals are doing all they can do to arrive at one or more vaccines and that these solutions, or at least mitigations, will arrive in a year or so. Anyway, that's my assumption. Even if I'm too optimistic about vaccine availability, my next assumption is that national lockdowns are over and other tools will be deployed, such as monitoring and distancing those in the high COVID risk groups. Keep in mind for perspective, and I don't minimize 100,000 deaths attributed to COVID-19, but please keep in mind that 480,000 Americans die every year from smoking, and before COVID-19, 80,000 Americans died of various flus, and on the low end, 40,000 Americans die each year from traffic deaths. I'm totally in the age and health segment of COVID-19 death risks, so don't assume I take anything lightly. My only point is that our economic and jobs issues have once again evolved over many years. COVID has accelerated recognition of our economic challenges, but these challenges would surface anyway just a bit later. At this point, we should not expect a V-shaped recovery in the economy and jobs, even though the stock market is trying to emulate a V-shaped recovery. On the stock market, keep in mind that past recovery experience has multiple major stock market swings during the early economic recovery phase. For your financial health, please don't assume the crisis is largely over and that the stock markets and bond markets will smoothly move higher. I'm not an oracle, but I fully expect the stock and bond markets to go through huge up moves and down moves for the remainder of this year and likely through next year. You may accept my finding that all prior crises and recessions behave the way I just described, but this one's different, right? Every time something comes up, it's different. For those of you who invested your hard-earned savings and retirement plans in the new internet environment in the late 1990s and early 2000s, I'll gently remind you that the internet boom then was also described as different, in that a company didn't need any earnings, they just needed to attract eyeballs and site traffic. The new metric for stock price valuation then was number of views per web page. We don't have time to drill deeper, so let me just summarize by saying that many lost a lot of money in the internet stock burst because the new investment darlings had no chance of making a return on investment. ROI is the one proven metric. No one can hide from it, and no one wants to invest their money in projects that fail or return nothing. If you'd like to learn more about panics, crises, and recoveries, we are offering our free class uh, a second time. Due to the large response of about a month ago, we plan to offer it again in the middle of July. But you can enroll now, actually. The enrollment period is open, and it's free. Just go to www.uclaextension.edu website, scroll to the bottom of the homepage, and click on No Cost Educational Resources. 
Scroll down to the 2020 panic, what's next? Navigating panics, recessions, and recoveries. Click on this course and take advantage of free enrollment and course access instructions. Today, I plan to briefly discuss the following subjects as they relate to ultimate economic jobs and business recoveries. Number one, the industry's position to first recover and return to growth, including a few caveats. Number two, the changes in job prospects for our recovery and the longer term. Number three, small business support and continuing recovery issues. The next, what we've learned and can, can apply from past stock market recoveries, followed by today's monetary creation and important implications during this recovery cycle and thereafter. First of all, the Commerce Department reported that the gross domestic product, which is the broadest measure of economic health, fell at an average annual rate of 5% in the first quarter, which was a bigger decline than the 4.8% expected a month or so ago. It was the biggest quarterly decline since an 8.4% fall in the fourth quarter of 2008 during the depths of the 08-09 Great Recession. Economists believe that lockdowns shut down wide swaths of the economy and triggered the layoffs of millions of workers with a result that will send the GDP sinking at an annual rate of 40% or more in the quarter we're currently in. That would be the biggest quarterly decline on records that go back to 1947. It would be four times the size of the previous decline set back in 1958. Many forecasters believe growth will rebound sharply in the July-September quarter, with the Congressional Budget Office predicting GDP will rise at an annual rate of 21.5%. Still, that gain would not be nearly enough to make up for the economic output lost during the first and second quarters. Many economists worry that the positive gross domestic product performance being forecast in the second half of the year may not come about at all. And the key reason is if current efforts to reopen the economy do not go well. And in a number of areas, they are not going well. All the expectations assume no further shutdowns from a second or subsequent wave. I don't even want to think about a scenario that returns us to lockdowns for any period of time. Let's just agree that the numbers we see today are horrible and that a recovery is underway. We can debate how bad the numbers are and how long the recovery will take. But we are entering a recovery phase, although the numbers won't show this for many more months. First, the industry's position to recover the fastest, and I'll comment on the slowest. In California, the residential home market appears a candidate for a V-shaped recovery, or let's say a quick snapback. If anything, we have a housing shortage here. This lack of overbuilding in recent years, plus a continuation of low mortgage rates, are effective stimulators. Another stimulator could be behavioral change in that individuals who have been living in multifamily dwellings may strongly prefer a more private, personal, single-family dwelling now as opposed to the multiple-family. Additionally, banks and securitized mortgage lenders are strongly supported by the Federal Reserve, and the Federal Reserve is strongly supporting the mortgage market. Banks on their own are making mortgages more difficult to get with higher down payments, so there is a, a bit of a negative, and another negative is the high unemployment rate, but we'll discuss the unemployment trends and how they might delay first-time homebuyers. Overall, residential real estate may rebound 
pretty strongly. This is likely not true for commercial real estate, as the government and Federal Reserve seem to have so far ignored this market segment. Many small businesses, as well as large retailers, are vacating office space and storefronts. I would be amazed if you don't see this in your locality. It's pretty much across the whole country. This is expected to pick up momentum as bankruptcies will not be reported completely or accurately for many more months. In my opinion, here's the recovery phase we're in. Mammoth cash injections by the Fed and major central banks so far has prevented a long-lasting depression similar to what the U.S. experienced in the 1930s. That being said, liquidity by itself is not enough. It's not enough to prevent years of high unemployment ahead of us and a steady stream of personal and business bankruptcies. And a perfectly logical question is, why isn't all the money creation enough? Keep in mind what the Fed cannot accomplish as it only has money and banking tools in their tool chest. And actually, those are there are those who are alleging that the Fed has gone beyond the Federal Reserve Act of 1913 by buying junk bonds, and there may be some even litigation issues against the Fed. Nothing surprises me. Putting that aside, what the Fed cannot accomplish, number one, it cannot reverse the unprecedented wealth inequality. Income and wealth distribution concentration across the country. The gap is at its highest in history, and this gap continues to grow. Secondly, the Fed cannot make people take on the risks and heartaches of starting new businesses. In fact, many small businesses, particularly restaurants, small retail stores, and real estate developers, are moving into the bankruptcy pipeline. The small business startups not only face lower consumption expenses, they face civil instability, and they also face pressures for higher local taxes that are emerging. From the time a real estate location, assuming one is needed, is signed, plus the leasehold improvements, plus the pre-opening of the location or the store and getting the inventory, in many cases requires a physical facility to open a year, sometimes two years, after the initial payments are made to establish control of the property. Well, in a year or two, you can use your own imaginations about the pressures of increased taxes in the localities. Increased real estate taxes, increased sales taxes, increased permit taxes, and every other tax you can imagine. Number three, the Fed's liquidity cannot force employers to hire more employees. The best case is it can help employers keep existing employees for the balance of this year. Number four, liquidity cannot make unprofitable businesses profitable. Paired with record high savings rates and record unemployment, many businesses simply cannot break even financially week to week, especially with social distancing and capacity limits. Number five, the Fed liquidity cannot force people to buy assets at prices that no longer make financial sense. Record levels of new cash generation worldwide are keeping stock and bond prices high day to day, but this is not sustainable with the above facts we've already mentioned. Number six, liquidity injections cannot make insolvent businesses and local government businesses solvent. The Fed is presently buying pretty much all the securities, bonds, treasuries, municipal debts, securitized mortgages, and junk bonds it can find across the board. This cannot create sustainable organizations. It can only give them time to downsize their budgets and particularly their expenditures. Governments may be the last type of organization to downsize and only a few are probably in that process now counting on new higher taxes to cover the gap. Number seven, 
Fed liquidity cannot force people who now realize their priority is to save instead of spend, even if the Fed forces negative interest rates. We know now that savings increase during periods of extreme uncertainty regardless of the level of interest rates. In fact, some studies have shown the lower the interest rates are be below 4%, savings rates actually increase. Number eight, the Fed cannot lower the unaffordable cost structure of the entire economy. It can't feed it forever without making the dollar worthless at some point. And some of you may doubt, notice that the dollar has become noticeably weaker in the past month or so as the extreme money printing and debt have been issued by the U.S. Treasury. Number nine, the Fed cannot delink all the financial dependencies in the financial system that make the system so vulnerable to the first domino falling. The Fed can support the survival of banks. It cannot place the shadow banking system in total on life support. If you're taking my free UCLA course, you'll learn that the shadow banking system is almost the same size as the total assets of all the world's banks. It's really big, and it's outside the control of banking regulators. Number 10, the Fed cannot stop people from selling their assets. As the real estate stock and bond markets recover, many will take advantage of any price increases by selling, which makes full recoveries prolonged in terms of many years. We witnessed this week how fast the stock market can drop when selling gains momentum. In past podcasts, we've reminded that trillions of dollars of global capital move through our stock, bond, real estate, and derivatives markets every single business day. If you assume the entire market value of all U.S. stocks is about $40 trillion and the U.S. bond market's value is about $70 trillion, you can begin to appreciate how several trillion dollars every day moving through the financial system, if it gains momentum, can impact these numbers considerably, as it has, as it will again. I think you can begin also to appreciate that these large amounts of money that are being moved are moved by a relatively small number of investors, large investors. I would imagine we're talking about less than a thousand investors worldwide who are controlling trillions of dollars per day of money movements. And these investors want to protect themselves. They don't want to be the last to exit a market that would appear to be weak. And today, stocks and bonds are near all-time highs, and that's despite our long list of economic issues. So the time is ripe, and you'll notice we've had some days uh, where you've seen that. And during past recoveries, we've seen four, five, or six major stock market declines and increases in an overall decline trend during the recovery period. So far, we've only had one, and arguably we may be in the beginning process of a second one. Time will tell. A few days ago, one of the highly respected global investment leaders, Jeffrey Gunlock, shared that his models show a much lower stock market dead ahead, even considering all the liquidity generation I mentioned. His views are worth reflection, although no one can forecast the future consistently, if at all. He also reminded on a topic we previously covered, and that is for the past 11 years, I don't think we used 11 years, but we did discuss the subject, but for the past 11 years, almost all the stock market gains have been fed by increasing debt levels and money creation, not real market growth. He also calculated that the world stock markets have barely increased over the past 10 years if you subtract six stocks from the total. Those six stocks are Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, Google, and Facebook. 
So if you take those out of the equation, the global stock markets have barely increased at all or insignificantly over 10 years. So here's the bottom line. We are entering recovery, but a sustainable or smooth recovery may be two or three years away. Between now and then, volatility and sometimes shocking news will enter the daily news cycle. Even if we have no substantive setbacks, the financial markets are strongly supported day to day by creation of massive amounts of new money we call liquidity. We really need, in my opinion, to adopt a cash conservation mentality and look several years ahead for a return to smoother, more predictable growth, particularly in employment and investments. A critical factor, in my opinion, right now is the adoption of federal policies to engage our unemployed workforce with substantial infrastructure projects and, yes, new federal borrowing and more Fed money creation. A number of our podcast listeners in our free course, which will again be offered July 10th, so please join us. We will certainly be making updates, and we will certainly have different expectations than we do in the course that we're wrapping up right now. And did I mention that there are recommended videos and readings, but no homework? The course is focused on professional development, not grades. Our course, again, spans six weeks. Enrollment is available now www.uclaextension.edu, scroll down to the bottom of the homepage, go to no-cost educational resources, and then scroll down to the 2020 panic, what's next? If you've taken the initial course, feel free to enroll in the second course. Let me know anything you'd like to pass on, ask me any questions, make any suggestions. And the one thing I'm really sure of is we'll continue to have much more to share in the next two weeks. Take care, stay safe, and uh, hope to be with you then. Be sure to email us at rtornadin at uclaextension.edu on more specific questions, which we will answer either personally or select as part of our future podcast. Hosted by Business and Legal Programs Director Roger Tornadin. This podcast is presented by UCLA Extension and produced by Jamie Moss at Studio 10960. These podcasts are made for educational purposes and are not financial advice. The goal is to educate and provide resources on focused economic and job trends with the latest support research so that you can make more informed financial and career decisions that best suit your personal needs. UCLA Extension offers more than 5,000 online and in-classroom courses taught by over 2,000 leading practitioners to help you get from here to there. For more information on this podcast or our financial and legal programs, please check us out at www.uclaextension.edu. We know it's about your life, not just your money. 